0: Good afternoon. I'm Russ Portenoy from the Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care, and I want to welcome you to the second of the professor's rounds in the 2017 NJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. We're really delighted today to welcome Dr. Tammy Quest as our professor, giving a special lecture on palliative care in the emergency department. Dr. Tammy Quest is a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology at Emory University School of Medicine. She is the director of the Emory Palliative Care Center for Emory's Woodruff Health Sciences Center and the chief of the section of palliative medicine at the Atlanta VA Medical Center. Formerly, she was director of the Grady Cancer Center for Excellence palliative care oncology program. Dr. Quest is a nationally and internationally recognized expert in palliative care in the emergency setting. She has published extensively on the role of the emergency physician in palliative care and the special challenges that emerge when the precepts and practices of palliative care are implemented in the emergency department. In this area, she has had a strong interest in novel palliative care curriculum design and teaching methodologies. She is, in fact, program director for the Fellowship of Hospice and Palliative Medicine at Emory, serves as the director of the National Cancer Institute sponsored education in palliative and end-of-life care emergency medicine, the EPIC-EM training program and has been a member of the National Priorities Partnership Palliative and End-of-Life Care Workgroup. Her interests also extend to the role of ethics in end-of-life care. She holds a core faculty appointment at the Emory University Center for Ethics, is immediate past chair of the Ethics Committee for the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, and is a member of the Ethics Committee for the American College of Emergency Physicians. There are a few physician leaders in the world today who can better address the issues that arise when palliative care is considered in the emergency department setting. Dr. Quest's topic today will be integration of palliative care into emergency medicine, challenges, and opportunities. Dr. Quest.
1: Thank you, Russ. I really appreciate the opportunity today, and I thank everyone for taking the time out to hear about this topic. And I look forward to us spending the next hour together and a fruitful discussion. So I have uh, no financial disclosures um, here um, today during my presentation. So our objectives today are to describe the imperative to integrate palliative care into routine operations to talk about the expected benefits and identify opportunities for improvement. And what we're going to do as we go throughout is I'm going to give you an introduction and an overview. We're going to examine the literature um, a bit and then we're going to let you ask questions and think about how you might integrate in your setting. So I like to uh, start um, these sorts of um, endeavors with a case because oftentimes I think one of the most common questions that I've gotten in my career over the last 18, 19 years is really palliative care in the emergency department. Hmm, that doesn't seem to go together. And as a, I was trained as an emergency physician and came into palliative care in 2000, and really have been doing it continually since, and I see perfect integration, so it's not always apparent for people how this might um, correspond. So, I'd like to um, go through a case. So, this is an 81-year-old female with multiple strokes who came to the ED for possible gangrene in the foot. She's nonverbal dependent for all the ADLs. She'd been ventilator dependent in a rehab center for a couple of weeks. She has three adult children, but no identified healthcare care agent. In notes from the nursing home, a letter from the daughter stated the patient was clear about her wishes, quote, unquote, not to be on machines. Now, that's, of course, interesting because she's been experiencing that. The patient spent 24 hours in the ED um, awaiting a hospital bed, and the sole focus of care was medical stabilization for her underlying problems. Another case might, uh, might be an um, extremely common one, is, as you see, and we're going to talk about both of these cases a little bit more, but an elderly man, recurrent, had neck cancer with tongue resection, placement of a PEG tube with life-limited expectancy, lived alone, and was able, uh, was admitted to the hospital multiple times without evaluation by palliative care. After screening and referral by nurses in the ED, the ED attending in her palliative care team evaluated the patient and determined he was hospice-appropriate. He preferred to continue living at home, and home hospice care was provided, and he died within the week. In the first case, I'll go back here. You'll see that this patient, um, this 81-year-old very unfortunate um, woman who probably has had tremendous suffering with gangrene, has been dependent uh, on ADLs. She'd been ventilator-dependent for two weeks. Um, and then gets transferred. We do see these patients more and more being transferred in a ventilator-dependent status uh, to the emergency department, Um, and you see these paradoxes around uh, the patient not wanting to be on machines, and there we are in the ED with a long wait, um, trying to figure out how might we best help this patient and family. So I'd like to focus on the fact that spending 24 hours in an ED waiting for a hospital bed is no longer uncommon, unfortunately, with the uh, uh, ED um, crowding and boarding situation. And what you'll see is that there's a lot of time there that we could be working with patients and families in the ED after a patient is admitted. So I want you to keep that in your mind as we go throughout the presentation. In the second case, it really represents an ED intervention Uh, regarding a patient who's got a limited life expectancy with palliative care needs and ED palliative care uh, intervention being um, one where the patient was directly um, discharged from the emergency department uh, with home hospice and that this was as timely um, as we could have delivered, unfortunately, in this case. Uh, But you can imagine that it's likely that that patient would have spent the last week of their life in the hospital had this not been recognized. So we've come a long way in emergency medicine. Uh, The uh, 2008 policy statement from the American College of Emergency Physicians, which is uh, a organization of 25,000 emergency physicians, states around the physician role that emergency physicians play an important role in providing end-of-life care, helping families achieve control over a dying and end-of-life process, advanced care planning, affirming that, that, um, uh, that in, um, in the trajectory that this is very important, and that patients and families should be able to communicate and um, exert the necessary intervention to support their loved one by surrogacy. And that to enhance end-of-life care in the ED, the college recommends that emergency physicians should respect the dying needs um, and um, care for patients near the end of life, communicating appropriately, and eliciting patient's goals of care before initiating treatment. So what we know is a national st- statistic is that one in five patients will die in a critical care ICU setting, and a number of those interventions were initiated in an emergency department and this really speaks to emergency physicians in the sense of really stop, uh, look, listen and feel and to try to assess the situation before acting to see if that's actually what would be in the patient's best interest. Um, the other piece that we um, are focusing on in emergency medicine really is around advanced care planning. and. Um, really be respecting the wishes. So there is evidence there that patients will have advanced care plans that are not respected. we are seeing a lot less of that in this decade than we were the previous decade with respect to emergency care. But really, as we know that advanced care plans and advanced directives are often vague. And so it really is incumbent upon the emergency uh, physician there, and we'll get to our colleagues our nurses, um, to talk about um, assisting surrogates and trying to um, help make decisions based on preferences and goals because having something such as allow natural death may or may not be something that surrogates actually understand when it's actually happening. And so trying to make sure that we are focusing on those things is important. So another big area in emergency medicine is encouraging uh, presence of families and friends near end-of-life, and uh, family presence during resuscitation and invasive procedures. You will see more and more in institutions that um, that their emergency departments will have those policies, and I would love to have a discussion about that at the end of this talk and the Q&A session about that. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about family presence at end-of-life. Um, and um, I think that it's one of those things where um, a decade ago, we would be keeping the family out, and now there's much more of an impetus to keep the family in uh, based on uh, what we're talking about in our field. And then importantly, import, uh, protecting the privacy and fam- of patients and families near the end of life, that um, the emergency Department is a notoriously non-private environment, and so how we do that with limited resources is a challenge, but has been put out there as a priority. So, um, importantly also, liaisoning uh, liaisoning with individuals and organizations to honor um, cultural traditions, religious traditions, uh, focusing on communication skills, specifically um, around goals of care conversations um, as well as death disclosure. Uh, I personally teach our residents here, we have one of the largest emergency medicine residencies in the country, and me and my colleagues here in emergency medicine and palliative care um, really work with um, our our training colleagues to ensure that all of our residents know how to perform a death disclosure, and we do that in a skill-based exercise with standardized patients, Uh, focusing, of course, on um, after a death has occurred, um, recovery for organ transplantation or if somebody's in that trajectory. Uh, being able to support those um, choices and then informed uh, consent from surrogates. Postmortem procedures are increasingly rare in our field, but still do occur. And it used to be 20 years ago, um, embarrassingly, we would do postmortem intubations without um, informed consent of surrogates, and you would never see that in an emergency department today. These are all the things that perhaps um, those who don't work in an emergency department uh, may not think of, but these are all aspects of palliative and end-of-life care. So as we think about how far we've come, one of the things that we've, we've other than, than really pronouncing in our specialty that these are part, this is um, clearly part of what we do, the Choosing Wisely campaign, October 15th of 2013, is a wonderful talking point as you interact with emergency medicine colleagues. And this really um, set us forward light years um, where there was um, part of the Choosing Wisely campaign. And so those of you who don't know what that is, it's really a top one, two, three, four, five, or 10 list, depending on the specialty or the phase of the Choosing Wisely. What are the evidence-based approaches of things that emergency clinicians should be paying attention to? And this was in the 2013 first year of choosing wisely for emergency medicine was put out um, out there as a very important choice. This is right up there with uh, pediatrics. Please don't put IVs in pediatric patients. Try oral hydration. That was on the same list. Um, But don't delay engaging available palliative and hospice care services in the emergency department for patients likely to benefit. So the call is really out there for emergency clinicians to really um, focus on palliative care in the ED, and importantly, early referral from the ED um, to hospice and palliative care services can benefit patients. This is out there, and one of the really important pieces, I think, for all of you to recognize is that this will create a new demand that you might not have ever uh, seen before, and hence the field Of hospice and palliative care has to respond to a field of emergency medicine that is increasingly seeing palliative and end-of-life care as its core responsibility. So similarly to the American College of Emergency Physicians, the Emergency Nurses Association um, has a um, a similar um, uh, policy statement that I would encourage you all Um, to use as talking points when you are either in the emergency department as a provider or if you are going to interface with the emergency department as um, working with the ED but knowing what ENA says, really it talks about the family presence position statement, it talks about nurses um, focusing on helping uh, patients and family have choice, um, that emergency nurses must use clear, appropriate, sensitive, and open-ended questions to draw out the wishes, So, uh, this is really a parallel statement to the um, emergency uh, physicians, which is, you can see here that the team is coming together of interprofessionals in the ED to be uh, caring uh, for people in in what we would see as a best practice. Um, The ENA policy goes on to talk about respect, um, that the, uh, the physician's professional responsibility to discontinue treatment when appropriate um, that is a source of distress in an emergency department after something has been started um, either by EMS upon prior to arrival or um, as a patient comes to the emergency department and we initiate things as there's a deterioration, we may start things that we don't want to continue. And there can be um, a um, ethical and emotional challenge Um, that um, arises for people. And so trying to focus on um, respecting uh, patient family choices even when there's discomfort. ENA is promoting um, that there should be a healthy dialogue. Um, There's uh, respect for the interdisciplinary team. Uh, For nurses, there's a respect and um, edict that uh, emergency nurses should be helping develop policies and protocols, specifically around CPR, patients who are actively dying, uh, bioethical issues, um, and advanced care planning. Uh, working with uh, relationships with organ and tissue procurement, um, that is, I believe, uh, an important focus in the emergency department as we work very closely with, with um, organ procurement and tissue procurement organizations, and being able to see that as a possible opportunity for uh, family surrogates to give. Um, That is a part of core palliative care skills in the emergency department Um, for nurses to help um, design and meet the needs of patients and families um, in the ED, um, hospital transfers, hospital-based transfers, in and out. You can imagine as people may look like they're actively dying, the nurse is the one who really makes that phone call um, about um, who's going to receive on the other end and there has to be a comfort level there. And then... um, Also, something that we deal with in the emergency department are really coroner and medical examiner issues and allowing visitations post-mortem. This can be very contentious if you have, for instance, a traumatic death that was violent. Um, We uh, certainly, I've worked in institutions where families had to view loved ones from a a mirrored, I mean, a a viewing um, window. Um, and so trying to create programs and, and policies regarding uh, coroner and medical examiner issues um, in the ED is, is a really important piece of what we do that other people who work in palliative care and in hospice settings might not consider. Lastly, um, an acknowledgement that there it's a fast-paced, high-anxiety environment um, and that um, using good ethical um, principles there using critical incident stress debriefing um, as a way to to help support the emergency medicine team, uh, making sure that nursing curricula and continuing education programs really focus on this emergency aspect of care um, and really emergency nurses being involved in the research and building the evidence um, as we will um, talk about later on in the presentation. Um, The National Quality Forum in 2008, so historically this has been almost a decade, is that the ED clearly isn't the recommended venue to obtain palliative end of life care um, and that no more than one emergency department visit in the last month of life is what we were uh, targeting. Um, Really, so I think that based on everything that we're talking about and and all the we want to do it well pieces, I want us to never forget that the best emergency department visit is the one avoided, and so all the things that we can do upstream in palliative care and in hospice setting to avoid it still rings true, but when patients do end up in our emergency department with serious life-threatening illness, all of the things that we've been talking about um, are things that we feel are no longer past the buck. It's something that we ought to be doing, Um, and you'll see us as we're building that evidence. So, why um, why do we have to intervene in the emergency department? Uh, many of my colleagues in emergency medicine say, you know, I will do it, and I know that patients need this, but I'm just distressed that it has to be done in the emergency department. Well, we agree with them. Um, emergency or emergency department visits typically result because of what we see is wrong with our current care system, that it's fragmented that it's resource challenge, patients are um, not insured or underinsured, they can't get the transitions of care that they needed. Um, There's uncoordinated care um, where, you know, somebody is discharged from the inpatient setting, uh, goes home, they get home care, the family places them in long-term care. That may be a two or three-month process. And then when there's a crisis, if we don't have something that's really managing them, uh, the gaps in long-term care. We start that all over again, and it can be very frustrating. Um, there's limited support for caregivers. Typically, my in my experience, patients do call nine one one, but more often their caregivers call nine one one, and that is how they end up in the emergency department. And there's incredible system drivers and organizational dr- drivers um, that focus on disease-modifying therapies. For which time it's hard to balance, what's a complication, what's a natural part of the trajectory, those things. And so not managing those all um, end up um, with emergency department um, stays and, um, and emergency uh, nurses, um, technicians, physicians, all really frustrated because it is that downstream uh, piece of, of what's happening, but yet they must deal with it. So, when we look at improved quality, if it's going to happen, um, we've looked at the NQF guidelines, we looked at the um, ASAP guidelines, we looked at ENA, and I think that those are important things that say if an ED visit is going to occur with a patient who has serious life-threatening illness in distress of what you can see all the kinds of distress that occur, what sort of things might we be doing? As we think through our two earlier cases, it's pretty clear that um, the gentleman who came in with the head and neck cancer, that he was on an end of life trajectory. He's having his emergency department visit. The only thing keeping him either not from dying in the hospital or from being discharged and having another emergency department visit is a palliative care intervention, and in that case, a hospice intervention. So what does it mean then to integrate uh, palliative care um, in the emergency department? Well, um, for this presentation, basically integration really is the palliative care principles um, into the practice with or without the involvement of a hospice and palliative care team or inpatient hospice or palliative care unit. Um, And I think that that really what this speaks to are, again, primary palliative care skills, so whether that, emergency departments are 24 hour a day seven day week operations and so what we often have the challenge is that even if you do have hospital-based palliative care um, or hospice services available to you you are still left as that frontline provider so that integration um, importantly I think is really around what can the emergency clinician do that's within their within reason because um, the emergency department is a box Everybody comes, you have to, everything that comes in must go out, um, and so the ED is not a destination, it is a way station, and so we do have to be sensitive to the resources, but we do need to be thinking about how to help our emergency medicine colleagues wherever they are with what, whatever, um, whatever we can um, do. So, um, really, um, you know, the ED uh, is a safety net, Um, There's 116 million visits a year. Um, You'll see that about 140 to 150,000 people actually die in an ED every year. So that whole idea of um, of, um, bereavement care, death disclosure, organ procurement, that's actually an important part because we actually are taking care of lots of actively dying patients. Um, You can see here that about 10% of all the patients um, in the nation, are admitted directly from the ED to the intensive care unit. So we are part of that way station. Um, we take care of um, many patients who are um, are from long-term care. And so, as you look at the challenge, as our population ages, this is going to continue with our with all sorts of tsunami um, analogies. And so, um, this is the ED as a safety net it's really going to be increasingly a palliative care safety net, and it's going to be all hands on deck to be able to help figure out what's best for patients. So um, the ICU trajectories um, are set in the ED. I get to decide, are you going to the ICU? Or are you going to the floor? Am I going to discharge you to hospice? Am I sending you back to your um, nursing home? Um, I'm the one that actually starts potentially high-burden interventions, such as mechanical ventilation, ventilation, Um, initiates or continues cardiopulmonary resuscitation, Um, who starts the vasopressors, all the things that commit you to an intensive care unit stay. And so how to think quickly on my feet, be facile and make it work out well for the patient while also being being, um, really great at these other things is a very difficult dance. Um, So I think that um, what we often see also in this critical site of delivery when we talk about caregiver burden and caregiver giver distress, there is no question that patients and, and or caregivers really um, are, are. it's m- much of what we see is kind of called caregiver breakdown, if we could use that term in hospice anymore, but really it's, it's disguised as an acute crisis. Why did you actually bring your father in tonight? He looks... you know, he's really sick, but he looks about the same as he's been, and what you find out is the family, you know, hasn't slept for three weeks, and they don't know what else to do, and so they finally are exasperated, they call 911, and they may not even pick up our phone calls from the emergency department, because they actually don't just just need one good night night of sleep, and so sometimes it looks like a a crisis, and as you can imagine, as those patients come to the ED, they're getting labs, they're getting x-rays, they're getting all these things, and so that idea of um, caregiver distress is huge um, what we see in the emergency department and so trying to navigate that as you can imagine is is a challenge when we don't have social workers um, and it's really the ed nurse and um, physician trying to figure out what's going on with it with the technicians and other folks and remember the majority of our work is done um, after 5 pm so there's eight hours of the day. That people are typically at work, and then there's another 16 hours where people are not there, where we have to manage. So um, all of so if we actually start focusing on the ED, and so what do we do, and what do we not do well? Well, um, in the midst of all the things that I'm describing, pain and symptoms um, go undertreated. Um, we miss what needs the family has. We may not communicate as well as we need to. Us trying to you know, rehash or hash a prognosis in the ED and somebody who has advanced metastatic lung cancer, for instance, is, um, is can, be, can be tough when this has been going on and now the shoe dropped, it's Saturday at 10 p.m. And so sometimes we don't do as well as we could. There's conflict among, among clinicians, patients, and families, which is there's this perfect care plan that you all dressed up, you put a fabulous bow on it, You sent the patient home on a Friday with hospice care and by Sunday at 7 a.m. before um, church or religious services, everybody is in uh, the ED um, trying to come up with a different plan because um, they're not happy with that one or they don't understand that one or they're scared. So you can imagine that there can be a lot of conflict there and we end up not doing as well. Um, How to um, use our resources effectively. So, interestingly, in the in case one, what we often teach our emergency medicine residents as they're training up is we have a term of when to cut bait. At what point is it not going to be something that you're going to be able to modify? The patient is on, that tr- that train has left the station. They're intubated by EMS. We have no family there, um, and you know we've got 27 other patients that we're trying to take care of trying to hunt down family to remove life-sustaining therapy is going to be a tough thing. So, how do we efficiently um, uh, utilize resources to get the patient the right care while knowing that we have incredible continued pressure? We can't stop the flow into the emergency department. We can't stop people from walking in the waiting room. Even when we go on diversion, um, ambulances still come because particularly if you're a 911 receiving facility, you don't have an option. So trying to figure out ED palliative care so that we can do that is important. And then if you ask an emergency clinician what bothers them when they go home at night, it's the patients who are sick and dying or died um, that causes that. Emergency medicine is one of the top five sued sub- subspecialties from a medical legal perspective. And um, failure to treat, failure to diagnosis is is often at the root of that for successful suits. And so a patient dying is still considered to be a bad outcome in the emergency department. It can be really hard, and it really contributes to uh, burnout and moral distress. So I know that's a lot, and that sounds pretty upsetting, and it sounds pretty bleak. But I think um, if we have to um, think about um, what sort of essentials there are, I think that we kind of just have to take a break and sort of step back and take a breath and and say all right what's the essential so what is what is the basic and then what is what is the ideal and so sometimes as we have heard the phrase perfection is the enemy of good and um, what we find is there's no problem with trying to think about what perfection is and a lot of what we might um, see um, as perfection, um, you know, are on the slide, but I think that we have to kind of say you have to start somewhere, and organizations, institutions, and partnerships are at different levels. So, this is not going to be news to anybody probably on this call, but patients and families want to be in the gray zone. They want um, all the things that they can do to help uh, benefit their illness and they also don't want to suffer. And this can be really hard for emergency clinicians when they need to make a black-white decision. You're either going to die in the emergency department, you're going to be admitted, or you're going to be discharged, period. Those are the only options. And so oftentimes emergency clinicians will need expert guidance and support of hospice and palliative care experts to create a plan because we actually don't know what to do with people when they're in that gray zone, what can and cannot be done. And so as you think about successful programs in your area, in your care setting, what can you do to be a part of the solution for guidance? Um, I think that if we can get the right partnerships together, palliative care um, and emergency medicine partnerships, we'll see the things that we want. But I think that both people have to take the first step. Um, And so the emergency department has to take the first step. The palliative care program has to take the first step. Or the hospice program needs to take the first step, and 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 kind of say, okay, there's so many things going on. What little thing can we do to help patients, particularly in the gray zone? Uh, the culture um, is. Geared toward resuscitation and stabilization. That's just what we have to do. I think that everybody on this call that if one of you were to pass out right now and you're perfectly healthy, you would want us to be very good at resuscitation and stabilization of an acute life-threatening event. And how to actually focus on goals of care in the midst of that is a challenge for us. And there is the slow shift toward acceptance um, around these things and you've seen our policy statements you've seen that but i'm not going to going to guarantee you that if you walked out of this webinar today and went to your emergency department that people would say oh yes absolutely um, i totally get it what they might say is i see those patients all the time what can you do to help me because um, you know i can identify them i can see you know a cat i can see a dog i can see a squirrel But, gosh, it's really, really hard once I see that. I don't know what to do with that animal. So, um, thinking about um, all of these challenges, let's think a little bit about what creating a better system might look like. Well, I think that um, there needs to be a mutual understanding of of what um, can and can't be provided to patients. Um, I can tell you that Um, Oftentimes, in an ED, depending on how much communication there is on hospital-based and hospital-based systems, is that there may in fact be that if that emergency clinician has a goals of care conversation and they change the level of care determination, such as ICU versus general ward, that's a huge motivator for an emergency clinician because ICU bed availability is typically the longest wait in an emergency department. And if we can find that patients and families actually don't want the kinds of things that the ICU can offer, then we often can get um, a, the appropriate level of care that might actually move the patient out of the emergency department quicker, uh, not moving them to the ICU, moving them to a ward or palliative care unit, a hospice you pay. Um, and this can be very, very helpful. That can be an important carrot uh, for why should emergency clinicians have goals of care conversations. Guidance in Complex Pain and Symptom Management. Because of we are on the front lines in the emergency department of the opioid crisis, opioid management and trying to figure out what's going on with patients, um, it's very hard. Um, if you have to lump, it's hard to split. So trying to help emergency clinicians understand the use of opioids, understand um, how to manage complex pain or for instance dyspnea, right? So there's a study that showed that the number one cause of patients coming to the emergency department is actually shortness of breath, it's not pain. Um, And uh, there's another study in emergency medicine that shows that emergency clinicians are least comfortable dealing with um, actually dyspnea. When the patient comes in with with a um, chief complaint of shortness of breath, they are much more likely to go to the ICU, be intubated, or those things. Um, How to increase efficiency or throughput um, by helping speed disposition. Um, I'm going to challenge all of my hospice providers on the call to figure out how to partner with your ED and get patients directly out of the ED um, with, with hospice, either to your inpatient unit or to home hospice. This is a huge, huge help, right, that you can send that liaison Right over to meet with the family, see if it's right. If it's not right, that's fine. We can admit them to the hospital. But the faster you can do that, it really, really helps us. And I can't tell you how important that is. And then, you know, really, if we can get the feedback loop, um, one of the things that we do um, with all of our emergency clinicians is that whenever they refer a case um, to, um, particularly for hospice care, we always send them an email telling them what happened with their patient so that they can actually see the fruit of their labor. Um, because these are not easy things to work out. And um, and I've had many of our emergency medicine colleagues say, wow, getting that email really made a difference. It really made me want to have that goal of care conversation because it made me feel good that um, something good happened." But typically in the ED, we don't get a lot of feedback about what's happening after the visit. And so getting that feedback is really important. So really, we're talking about that integration for right, right care, right place um, in a timely, even the first time, in a timely manner. If you don't get it right the first time, it's another ED visit. We hate that in the emergency department. Um, we It's great because it's patient and family centered. Uh, Emergency clinicians are really patient family focused because patients and families are the ones that call 911. They're the ones that come through the door. These are all unscheduled visits, and so trying to sort through the right thing is often guided by the, by the patient and family. Um, the EV providers need to be corp, uh, competent in core palliative care skills, so pain and symptom management, communication skills, uh, family presence during resuscitation and invasive procedures, uh, death disclosure, um, you know, you can think of the ethical legal issues are important interpretation of advanced care plans. These are all things that we have to do while don't laugh trying to get a marble you know out of a kid's ear at the same time so there's a lot of these things where um, you know I've committed a lot of my uh, my career to education and um, and then uh, education though without uh, policy or procedure or or um, practice um, guidelines and um, locally won't help so if we just educate people and then we don't implemented in any way, unfortunately, that doesn't work. It, it's a starting point, but it doesn't work. So in a place where there are consi- there's consistent, reliable access to palliative care clinicians, um, it's really important that you take the first step uh, to the ED and say, hey, what, what can we do or offer something? The number one thing I'm going to tell you is please don't make our lives any more complicated the worst thing that ever happens is I'm in the ED, well, it doesn't happen to me because I'm the director of palliative care, but it happens to my colleagues where they call call palliative care and somebody asks them 20 questions and they just say, forget it. I, I mean, like it didn't help. I should have just admitted them to hospital medicine. I give my palliative care colleagues that feedback when those sorts of things happen uh, because I think that oftentimes they're not really connecting that the emergency clinician is asking for help. But... 20 questions is not going to be helpful necessarily. Pick your questions wisely. So being able to have that access but to be um, focused on what that person needs to hear is an important piece. So controlling symptoms, reducing um, anxiety, timely implementation, um, fewer conflicts um, about the use of life-sustaining therapies can occur if we're really focusing in that patient-centered space and then earlier transition to community uh, resources. And here in our institution, we directly admit patients from the emergency department to hospice all the time. Um, And that's become, and typically without palliative care consultation, our emergency medicine uh, residents and attendings are very facile in goals of care conversations. And so I think that while we could be doing more, the ones that we um, have been doing have been very successful, and I'm really proud of my colleagues that they're able to um, transition without having an expert in between. So um, how would we measure this? Well, uh, the kinds of things that you might measure in an emergency department as good integration, um, really uh, in the ED, um, throughput or um, metrics around uh, crowding and length of stay are hugely important. Um, ED, Um, length of stay is a very important metric. Um, And most emergency medicine practices in the nation, other than academic practices, even those, are still on a a volume basis. So you're compensated and you are incentivized to see more volume um, and trying to move patients. And so the metrics around length of stay um, are important in the ED. But as we think about from a systems perspective, um, avoided non-beneficial uh, treatments, length of the hospital length of stay, readmissions, inpatient deaths, all of those things are things as you think about system-based scorecards, why ED, palliative care, might be important, I think is, is important. And then patient safety um, is important. Um, and I think the other piece, as we talked about with burnout, um, really having these types of um, support system um, where things are flowing better really um, do link downstream to recruitment and retention of emergency clinicians because taking care of seriously ill patients, particularly where an ED is a more geriatric focus, can be very difficult. So optimal resource utilizations, um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, palliative care teams and cost avoidance. Um, Theoretically, ED palliative care could save ICU days, um, decrease life sustaining treatments. and um, What you'll see is that the evidence is emerging in that area, but we don't have all of the evidence that actually shows that implicitly. We've published some things about um, 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 ICU to hospice transfers, and so there's a lot more data around ICU to hospice transfer, but less around the fiscal um, impact um, around um, ed to palliative care. So um, that said, what does the ED staff care about? So I've talked to you a lot about why all of this is a good thing. So, you know what what incentivizes the the ED what are their pressures? Well triage and disposition the average patient must be triaged in an emergency department in less than two minutes and disposition or are they going to be admitted um, discharged, or transferred um, really needs to be done in most emergency departments within the frame of um, two hours. Um, And so the emergency clinician is working very fast and um, often with very complex um, patients. And so how to efficiently use the resources, how are you gonna do that and reduce ED length of stay. Uh, Patients sometimes are gonna stay there just because they have to because there's no place to go. how are you going to help with the, the throughput um, decreasing boarding of admitting patients? And so one thing perhaps in with case one that we were looking at with the person who's had um, ventilator dependence but never wanted a ventilator, you're like, okay, I, I'm confused um, why that is. The emergency clinician's confused. I don't know they're on a vent. They have to be admitted. Well, interestingly, um, having a palliative care team or palliative care um, intervention uh, by a subspecialist during that, working that out during this admitted boarding patient time period. You know, could could the patient have been there 18 hours if we made a decision that didn't didn't make sense and they could be moved, say, to a palliative care bed and extubated? I mean, are there things that could have been done? Um, patient family satisfaction, we care about that in the ED. Many uh, emergency medicine providers are actually compensated. Uh, based on patient family satisfaction. So lower patient family satisfaction scores actually have direct impact on their compensation. Um, risk management and compliance. The, um, As I spoke before, emergency medicine is one of the top five um, suits of specialties. And so they, that is a big deal. It may not be a big deal to other providers in the hospital, but it's a really big deal to us. And so trying to help Um, particularly around advanced care planning and surrogacy and those sorts of things, and helping emergency clinicians do the right thing is important. And core measures. So time to antibiotics is an important core measure. While many of our patients are going to actually have pneumonia or other things happen to them, and so not treating that pneumonia in the ED could be, or sepsis in the emergency department, which is how patients often deteriorate. Could speak to ED core measures, and so you have to really work with the ED to get them off of you know you know in the right person sepsis as a normal um, outcome of what's happening in a dying patient, and so being sensitive to what those pressures are. So I want to um, focus a little bit now on the evidence, and I called the preliminary evidence because we've got probably about ten years of data. I've tried to pull some of the more recent um, articles that are out there and things that are interesting, might be interesting to you. In the reference list at the end of this, there's some older, uh, more foundational articles, but I want to highlight a few um, of the um, most recent uh, things we've seen. So many of you have seen this model, um, and this is not going to be um, strange to anybody. And what you'll see here is that um, as time goes on, what you'll see is that as the trajectory goes on, that you'll see that patients may have multiple ED visits. And so as we think about the evidence that we're building, um, really when you say uh, palliative care in the emergency department, uh, there could be, if you say ED visit, visit one, Um, that person may be in a a very different place. And so when you look at the research, it can be limited about sort of where's the trajectory. And so we're just trying to come up with the best research methods now around how to to, uh, build the evidence along this trajectory. So recognizing when to intervene is a huge piece. So if you look at these trajectories, sudden death, organ failure, frailty, terminal illness, uh, the end-of-life phase of all of these often will present with cardiac arrest is obvious, but sepsis, renal failure, respiratory failure. And so part of our challenge in emergency medicine is that um, really a lot of patients are going to be on algorithms or pathways specifically around sepsis and respiratory failure where interventions may occur very uh, very quickly, and what you'll see is the as the evidence trying to um, build evidence for palliative care interventions um, with the time frame um, is a challenge, but we're certainly doing it. So the data, um, I think, um, is certainly not where ICU data is, um, but there is some there, and I would um, suggest that, that we get a little familiar. So this is from Journal of Palliative Medicine. This is a 2014 article. And this was a um, a real, uh, a a large um, systematic review. Do palliative care interventions reduce emergency department visits among patients with cancer at end of life? And um, interestingly, of course, we all wanted the answer to this, of this to be yes, which is that these palliative care interventions are going to um, help. But what you'll see here is that we don't have enough literature yet to say which palliative care interventions are going to avoid ED visits. This study talks about confusion amongst emergency clinicians about palliative care. We still are at a point, this is a 2015 article in Journal of Palliative Medicine, Um, what's in a name, 94 participants didn't really exactly understand what palliative care meant, and so this is 2015, Yes, we're moving along, but our evidence base is still telling us that um, there's a misunderstanding of the role and that there was inconsistent engagement with palliative care services. Screening tools, that's a big, big, hot topic, Um, and I know that last um, seminar, Professor's Rounds was with Susan Block, and um, there's a lot of um, evidence now around screening tools, and many of you are going to say, how do I screen? I'm going to point you to this study. Um, this screening tool was applied to patients who were over 65, where emergency physicians retrospectively said, hey, um, is it feasible um, for me to have been able to pick this person person up by screening tool? And the answer was yes, that's a 2016 um, study. Um, here's another one on screening tools. Um, it's called the P-CARES uh, screening tool. I would suggest that you all take a look at this one. This was in academic emergency medicine. And um, they were working on the p tool to try to um, identify screening for palliative care interventions. And um, most people in that um, study, um, 80, um, uh, 87% thought it was clear and unambiguous and likely to benefit patients with improved resources. So the reference is there, and I will point you to that screening tool. Um, this is the largest um, randomized um, control clinical trial in our field right now. It's the only one. It's the largest um, with 136 patients. Emerge department initiated palliative care and advanced cancer a randomized clinical trial. There were 136 patients. Half were randomized to ED palliative care versus usual care. Um, and what they found was is that there was um, higher quality of life, a trend toward um, longer survival, But interestingly, there was no difference in ICU um, hospice or depression or or, um, what they um, noted as depression or symptoms, and there was a trend toward longer hospitalizations in in their intervention group. Um, And um, I think that everybody wanted this to to show that people were going to have higher quality of life that um, they were going to have longer survival and that they were going to have decreased ICU utilization and increased um, hospice utilization with shorter hospitalization. That's what we would have just, oh, if I could just dream up. Um, Well, it didn't show that, but this is, and I want to really compliment Carita um, Grudson and um, uh, Dr. Richardson Richardson, um, and um, all of that team for doing this very difficult study. Um, and what happened was they, um, they um, the staff identified patients and um, consults either occurred either that day or the next day. And so we. this is the beginning phase of randomized controlled clinical trials. And so um, I don't think that you're going to, just like evidence has to build, you're not going to do one study and be able to get the answer. Um, I think that there are high expectations of one studies. And I'm really applauding Dr. Gredson and her colleagues for continuing in this investigation. So stay tuned. So again, the cost savings associated with U.S. hospital uh, palliative care consult programs. When this study was done um, by uh, Morrison um, and and colleagues, um, very famous study now. Um, you'll see here that we um, have have seen all sorts of things regarding the cost and. Um, IC utilization and what was used, this was a 2008 study. What we don't know, we don't have the answer to what what if there was ED palliative care there. And I presume that potentially Dr. Grudson's study is going to have um, some outcome data around uh, maybe cost savings or other things um, that we haven't yet seen. So all of that is to say that we've got preliminary evidence. um, And when we look at the evidence, what sort of things do we need to have? We're gonna be studying more barriers um, as time goes on. What are the knowledge and skills? And we already have some of that worked out there. What resources is needed? And what does the system um, need to do to accommodate? So, moving forward, um, I think that key areas are gonna be pain and symptom management, caregiver stress, um, preferences, um, goals of care, and then, of course, patients who are actively dying What do we do with those patients to provide best care under a less ideal circumstance? Um, I think that um, as we move forward, creating ED palliative care dashboards, focusing on coordination of transitions uh, of patients who have high palliative care needs, bridge palliative care in ED, um, using um, bed briefings, sign-out rounds, all sorts of things to try to integrate palliative care in the ED, Particularly because patients have such long ED waits, I think there's an opportunity after patients are admitted for a palliative care team to walk down to the emergency department, not wait for the patient to get to the floor and get that consult started. And I think exploring staffing models and resources uh, requests that include services to the ED, when people are asking for more resources are, for their teams and programs, are they saying, we want to do this because we want to serve the ED? So in summary, the ED is a key venue for improving palliative care. Um, there's a lot of deficiencies regarding um, what we um, what we know and how to do this well. Um, we believe that ED initiatives can achieve um, clinical benefits and potential cost savings while we have emerging evidence. And there's all kind of tools um, and assistance. Um, the largest thing that we've been able to do with CAPSEA is the IPAL Emergency Medicine Project, and that's been um, a huge um, support to many, many programs. So I'm going to move uh, past our uh, policy statements and references here, but to show you that there are a number of references um, in the that were either in the presentation or ones that you might see afterwards, and, um, and to get you started and look at some of the background of where we've come as a field. Um, And I'd like to um, now allow for an open question and answer period. Back to you, Russ. Thank
0: you, Tammy. That was really terrific. I appreciate that. Um, We have a few minutes for questions. I I think you, um, our audience committee, gather their thoughts, type in some questions that are of interest. We have a couple already on the screen. Um, The first one is a question about the uh, criticism of palliative care teams that you offered when when a call to the ed is accompanied by 20 questions that the ed doc feels is a burden and the questioner wants to know what the key questions might be if if they had to reduce them from 20 to a core group of a just an, a small number of questions to move things along what what are the key questions to ask
1: so that's a great question um, i think that the the key question is how how two questions one is Do you think this patient needs to be admitted, or do you think that if we intervened, we can avoid an admission? So um, that's gonna be a key question. And number two is going to be, how can I help you achieve um, that? How can I help you best? And because emergency uh, clinicians are always calling for consults, we have in our mind already how we want somebody to help us. Uh, but sometimes we're afraid to exactly say that because we think that you might not help us if we actually say that. But I think that if the person is saying, you know, do you think that do you think this is a patient that we need to that you're going to admit or you think you might discharge them if we did something different? And if so, how can I help you? It may be that they're calling for early palliative care because they think that's fine and they just want you to see them tomorrow. But I think those are two questions that can get you right where you need to be and and get on the page of the emergency clinician, which is that they have to sort every patient. They're either going to be admitted or discharged. And so knowing where your role in that is to help them will be helpful.
0: Thank you. Here's a question that maybe fits into that concept of the the perfect being the enemy of the good. Uh, It says um, the ED is a 24-7 operation. Palliative care consult teams don't often work the same way. And hospice agencies may have trouble admitting patients at night. how do you suggest building a partnership with this problem? Great.
1: Right, so the ED is very good about understanding its resources. So let me give you an example. Dermatology also does not come in at 3 o'clock in the morning. I know this is hard to believe, but um, there, uh, there are many specialties that actually don't typically come to the emergency department. So physical medicine and rehab. I mean, there's just... There's there's certain specialties that we know um, don't have that level of services, but actually, if you can tell us what you can do, we can work within that. Oh, well, that service is available from this to that. We're actually very good at that, and it's not as offensive as people might say. And you can say, well, if it happens at night, here's what I think you ought to do. Put an electronic uh, uh, consult in. We're going to see it right the next morning. Thank you for that. Give people options for what to do the next day, if, or, you know, if it's an off-time hours. But, but what I would say is create those options and don't have it if you just can't respond 24 hours a day. Or, for instance, our team is on call, you know, for day, day and night for ED, um, but, but my providers don't typically have to come in. We can handle almost everything on the phone. Um, so even answering the phone is helpful without the expectation of coming in.
0: Uh, we have time for just one more question. The, the questioner says, if a relationship is built between the ED and palliative care, should we expect our ED colleagues to perform tasks like palliative sedation and palliative extubation?
1: So I think that that ought to be um, negotiated with the emergent department. I can tell you palliative sedation is is probably not something that I would expect that most emergency clinicians would do. I think symptom management um, is going to be uh, to to be within that wheelhouse. Um, I think that uh, withdrawal of life sustaining therapies when it is cl- when there's clear and convincing evidence that that needs to happen, we do consider that to be a core skill in emergency medicine. So we do teach people how to do that. Um, we in our EPIC Emergency Medicine course, we have a whole module on that. Um, there, That is something that we do do, um, and, but I do think that people need support for that and for developing those processes and protocols.
0: So I'm aware of the time. I think that's all the time we have for questions. So first, let me thank you, Dr. Quest, for an amazing talk, just really wonderful and illuminating. And now let me just remind our audience to complete your evaluation so that uh, we can plan for future sessions and you can get your CME and CE credits. And also, let you know that our next webinar will take place on June 1st, Thursday, June 1st, 2017 at 1230 in the afternoon. And that webinar will be given by Dr. Bernie Lee, the Associate Chief Medical Officer at MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. And that will be entitled, Emerging Role of Medical Cannabis for the Seriously Ill. Not one to miss. So thank you all, and thank you again, Dr. Quest.